1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. We're going to go ahead and stand up. We're going to read them. It's going to be great. Uh, just a heads up, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Brandon. I'm the youth director here at Bethany, and I will be bringing you the lesson today. So verse 22 starts like this. Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the words of the Lord remain forever. And this is the word and this word is the good news that was preached to you. you may be seated. Throughout history, there's this thing that's gone on where people would pledge their allegiance to kings. And one way they would do this is by giving their sword, saying, I will fight for you. I will do something and be obedient to you. And when it came to the point as I started to dig in history where sometimes somebody would place their allegiance to multiple kings, they would always give their allegiance to the king that was higher or the lord that was higher. And it was kind of cool because as I started to think about uh, battles and things of that nature and swords and knights, it brought me back to Narnia. For those of you who don't know Narnia, it's an amazing book series by C.S. Lewis and they made a couple movies out of it as well. And within it, there's just this sense of chasing God within it. There's this lion named Aslan, and he is the Christ center. There's an awe around him as you search towards him. And as we go into a particular uh, book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, they're tasked with sailing east to get to Aslan's country. They're going towards the kingdom of God. And what else we see in that is they're also tasked with picking people up along the way. And there's this little tiny mouse, his name is Reepicheep, and he had pledged his sword to Aslan. He would be obedient to Aslan till the end. He would do as he had asked him to do. There comes a point where things aren't going quite as well as they should on the boat, and Reepicheep makes this statement. It says, my own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east. Yeah, I will swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country, or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. See, Ripachi knew what he was to do. He had pledged his allegiance to Aslan, and he was going to search and do what he asked as long as he could until the bitter end. Today we're going to talk about allegiance and see where does your allegiance or your obedience truly lie. Start out with verse 22 uh, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. It says this, Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. I want us to first notice that Peter is actually talking to Christians, right? These are people who have purified their souls already in obedience. They have, in the sense, taken off the old and put on the new. That's 1 Corinthians, right? They have walked away from the old self and have gone to the new self. They're no longer an old creation, but a new creation in Christ. For those of you out there who say you're a Christian, you are part of Christ, you are part of his family, does your whole life show that? 
see, there's this stereotype going around, and to be honest, it's not really a stereotype. It seems to be a pretty true thing, and they're called cultural Christians. And as a cultural Christian, they'll show up to church every couple Sundays or so. They'll go to a couple of events, maybe. They'll tithe, and they'll go to Christmas and Easter. That seems to be the typical thing. But something we have to realize is going to church doesn't make us saved. See, putting our full allegiance into Jesus as the center of our life is what makes us saved. Taking ourselves off the pedestal and putting him on the pedestal in our life. See, so many Christians, I don't think they truly take their faith seriously. It's kind of like they're floating on a tube in a pool, and they're just waiting. They're happy being there in calm waters. They don't want to get in and swim and really get, get deep into it, but they're happy just, just sitting there, floating along. So anything happens, and the water gets disturbed, and they get thrown from their tube, and they're in the water right there. They're mad at the tube. They're mad at the water. They're mad at themselves. They're mad at the lifeguard for not coming close quick enough and then finally the lifeguard jumps in and tells them dude I just taught you how to swim 10 minutes ago what's going on see we're so happy to just be with God as long as everything's going great but sometimes I don't feel even myself I'm taking my faith seriously I'm putting him as first like it says in John 14 6 he Jesus saying I am the way and the truth and the life See, it's only through Jesus that you are saved from going to hell. There is no other way. If your life is not given over to Jesus, that is where you will go. And I think as this culture has kind of developed, we've made hell a cartoon. We kind of just, you know, we watch like Tom and Jerry, stuff like that, and it's just kind of this place that people go who do wrong. It's an actual place it's not this place you go and you smoke cigars and you talk with your friends and play poker. That's not what it is. Seems to be another stereotype about it. It's an eternal punishment. This is what the Bible says about hell in Revelations. It's a fiery lake of burning sulfur. In Matthew, it calls it an eternal punishment. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. I love the way R.C. Sproul put it. To be separated from God for eternity is no great threat to the impenitent, that's the uncivil person. The ungodly wants nothing more than to be separated from God. Their problem in hell will not be the separation from God. It will be the presence of God that will torment them. In, God, in, sorry, in hell, God will present in the fullness of his divine wrath. I mean, hell is this awful place. It's full of God's wrath. It's absent of his goodness and full of his punishment. See, sometimes we can't get around the fact that actions have consequences. I know some of you have had kids, your parents, and you've been practicing or trying to teach your kids that actions have consequences. If you study, that's the action. The consequence is, hopefully, you should get good grades. The action, if you don't clean up your room, the consequence is you may not find anything in that room. For me, it was no different. Learning actions have consequences. When I was nine years old, my aunt had taught me how to make bacon in the microwave. This was revolutionary. <laughs> I could have bacon quicker than, you know, on the stove. Uh, just 
for an interest, my grandmother's house where I lived at, the bacon, I had to, like, the microwave itself, I had to grab a chair and I'd have to get on top of it. The microwave was like six feet in the air. And so um, I was told I can cook bacon as long as somebody was with me to help me cook it. And so one morning, of course, being nine years old, I want bacon, nobody was around, and I cooked bacon. Uh, But this is where it gets kind of interesting. See, my aunt would put a a cloth over the bacon to get the grease off so it didn't stay on there. Well, I didn't do that step. I didn't think I needed that step. And so I I put the bacon in, I cooked it for its, you know, time, and I went to grab it out, and the grease all poured down my stomach. And I was so mad at the consequence that occurred, I couldn't swim for three weeks in the middle of summer. It was awful. See, I wasn't worried about the consequence, the long term of the actions that I had. To be honest, I didn't care about anything. I just wanted what was in front of me, what would give me the greatest pleasure at that time. There was no looking out beyond that couple of moments to see the bigger picture. As we talked about hell, I want to talk about heaven. And if you've ever asked somebody about heaven, if they're going to heaven, if they think they are going to heaven, a lot of times the answer I get is yes. And then you have to go, okay, why do you think you're going to heaven? And it seems to be like there's some sort of standard they're going off of. And it's a really subjective standard. They'll be like, well, I'm good compared to my spouse, so I'm going to heaven. Or I'm good compared to my friend, so I'm going to heaven. Or I'm good enough, I can go. I belong here. See, we got to realize that there is an objective standard to who gets into heaven. And that, that's, it's perfection, and we can't reach that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person. We all deserve an eternal punishment in hell. There's no way around it. So how do we receive this eternal life in heaven? It says in Acts chapter 3, 19 and 20, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, that's Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 also adds on to it, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, we're called to repent and turn the opposite way. Not sit there and flirt with sin, but we're called to give our lives to Jesus, make him the center of our life, be obedient to him, and turn away from it. See, here's the great part. God doesn't want us to spend eternity in hell. That breaks his heart. That's why the devil tries to bring as many people with him as possible. See, he will take you in any condition. He wants you to go to heaven with him. And he'll take you in any condition. There's no need to make yourself better to try to get to this certain point. See, he's given you your son so that you can turn to him. When I was eight years old, I had a polar bear. And, yeah, there, well, this is his brother. I'll get to it why. Um... And that was my favorite stuffed animal. I mean, that thing went with me everywhere. 
It would sleep on the bed when I go to sleep. It, you know, it was, that was like my best friend possibly when I was eight years old. And one day uh, I did that thing where you know, I wanted to bring him to school with me. And my mom said the famous last words, don't bring him to school because you'll lose him. And of course I brought him to school and I lost him. I was still learning the actions and consequence thing. Now, see, normally if you leave something at school, it's okay, but I left him the last day before Christmas break. And when I went here on Christmas break, they would take everything and they would donate it. So I, I cried myself to sleep that night, losing my, my stuffed animal. And then the next day, I started to create these big plans, how I'd spend my whole life saving up money, doing as much as I can so I can fly down to Africa or South, Africa, South America or wherever they sent my polar bear just so I can find him and bring him back. I would bring him back in any condition he is. If he was dirty, if he was ripped, I would take him and I'd make him new. It's exactly what God wants to do with each of us. He doesn't care what condition you're in. See, he'll take you and he'll restore you back to it. Sometimes we're so quick. I don't know if you've ever had anybody buy you lunch before, but whenever they buy you lunch, you like you you given them everything. They paid like ten dollars for lunch, and you're like, "This is the greatest thing ever. I have now given you my life." <laughs> and the person doesn't know what to do with it. And they're like, "Oh, cool. You know, fifteen bucks for lunch." And we're so slow to give Christ our life, and we're quick to forget what he has done for us. A question comes to mind. Who are we to give half our life to God when he's given everything for us? See, we're so fast to say that we're giving our life to God and then immediately turn around and do wrong. If we have this proper understanding that everything is God's and nothing is our own, it makes life so much easier. It makes it easier to give of our time, of our money, and our resources. If we didn't, if you did not know by now, God doesn't actually, you know, in the sense, need our offering. He can do stuff without us. But it's our privilege, then our honor, as we are part of his family, to give him our money, to give him our power, to give him what we can to be obedient to him and faithfully give. Does your life show one that is totally given over towards God? Does your schedule and your time show one that is truly given over towards God? The test is this. If God were to call you to do something, even for a short time, would you be able to give up work or school or whatever it is to do his will? Sometimes we give excuses. It's all too often. I'm too busy. I can't help in kids' ministry. Or I'm too busy to come to church. I am so stressed out about my life. And the Bible says I need to take a Sabbath. I'm too busy to come. It's easier just to stay at home. It's too hard to get the kids here. It's too hard to leave my couch. It's just too much of a drive. Or even maybe the worst lie of all. I don't need to go to church. Nobody will miss me. 
See, we got to come back to where does our allegiance lie? Who are we obedient to? So there's an importance to coming to church. You are needed at your local church to be a part of that body, to be a member, somebody who is buying in, somebody who is helping work with the kingdom. You're going to disciple other people and get discipled yourself. People are pouring into you as you are pouring into others. That's how you build the kingdom of God. Have you ever noticed how it seems the people who are the quickest to complain are the last person to step in and help. There's this verse that's always just, it scared me. It's Matthew 7, chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? And in your name perform many miracles? Jesus says this, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practices lawlessness. See, it's not enough just to say we know who Jesus and who God is. The demons, if you read through the Bible, know who, they, know who God is. See, it's bringing an intimate relationship with him where your life is centered around him, not around everything else, and allow him to kind of fit and choose where you want to put him. He's going to bleed into all areas of your life, into your schoolwork, into your family life, into your work itself, into your extracurriculars, into all of that stuff, your marriage, your singleness. It's making him the center, and everything else just springs out. And we're doing this in obedience, in the will of God, because we get to. One pastor puts it this way. Salvation and obedience to the will of God are inseparable. It's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of life and give all of our leftovers to God. It's kind of what Cain did, right? Gave the leftovers but we should be striving to be like Abel, giving him our best constantly. I don't know if you've ever been to like a camp before, or maybe this goes if you have a really big family, but you never want to be the last person to eat food, right? You want to be the first person there. So you become afraid of getting the leftovers. That's no different for me when I go to camp, right? It still happens. And they always have one pizza day at camp. And on pizza day, they have my favorite type of pizza, which is a pepperoni pizza. And if I didn't get it, I would be so mad. I could get stuck with cheese pizza, or worse, I can be stuck with a veggie pizza. <laughs> be picking it all off, making sure I got all the mushrooms that are trying to disguise themselves as sausages. <laughs> See, I'd be so disappointed. I felt like the cooks were giving me their leftovers, just what they had left. When so often we do that to God, we just give him the leftovers. See, the way God calls us to be obedient to him is through loving one another. It's one of the main ways. In part B of verse 22, it says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
See, as Christians, we're called to be obedient in love because God is love, it says in 1 John 4. That doesn't mean we're gonna get it right every time. To be honest, if you're like me, you're gonna feel like you get it wrong all the time. But we need to do is we need to be quick to forgive people who wrong us and we also need to be quick to repent when we do wrong. Love is so central to the Christian faith, so central to who Christ is. We're called to be gracious to the biggest extent. I love the way the New American Standard Bible puts this verse. Instead of earnestly, it says fervently love others, meaning to stretch to the furthest limits, like the furthest limits a muscle can take. And we're supposed to stretch ourselves to the furthest limits of grace and love for others. I, I think back to all the times people have forgiven me for some of the wrongs I've done to them. Uh, one of the times when I was in junior high, they had this, like, the thing was to give what's called a shoe wedgie where you'd, like, pull the very end of the shoe and it would, like, displace all of your laces. And it's the worst thing ever because you have to, like, restring the laces of your shoe. It's, like, right there. And so, of course, being an eighth grade guy, I did it to somebody and I was so strong, because I am this strong, I ripped their shoe in half. And I felt so bad. Probably because I thought I was going to have to pay for a new $60 pair of shoes. And this person didn't get mad at me. They didn't get upset. But they shrugged it off. They're like, I don't even like the shoes anyways. I want a new pair. And they're so quick to forgive me for this thing I'd done that was so wrong. to the same extent of loving for other people. If you truly love other people, you're gonna be sharing the good news, the gospel with them. Question for y'all is, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When was the last time you gave your testimony? See, we were called to share Jesus with the world. And 1 Peter 1.23 says this, since you have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. See, the person who is born again goes from godlessness and lawlessness and selfishness to manifesting a genuine repentance and trust in love towards Jesus. The Holy Spirit then empowers you to chase the law, to chase obedience to God. This means you go from chasing something that's going to perish, that's going to spoil, to something that's never going to be perish, and something that will never spoil. It's the kingdom of God. It's amazing stuff. We see our culture doing something totally different, though. See, uh, I don't know if you know this, but America spent about $4.1 trillion on healthcare in 2020. I checked with Derek, I don't know where you're sitting at, but 0.1 of a trillion is $100 billion. It's a lot of money. I'd be happy with a billion. <laughs> See, this isn't a small amount. America's trying to chase our lives to make them just a little bit longer, just to make it a little bit better. 
So we spend so much on it. We're trying to live as long as we can. We're so desperate to live forever that people will even get their bodies frozen in nitrogen after they die. You can do this in Arizona. And then they'll bring you back at a later point in time when supposedly they have enough technology to do that. People are so desperate for this that even Walt Disney has some sort of rumor going around that his brain is frozen and they're going to thaw him out and bring him back to life. See, we're so desperate to bring it back, to live forever. This world is trying to tell us to live as long as you can and have the best time ever because there's no thought of what's going to happen next. They don't want to think about it. And it's hard to expect anything different when you have some of the leading scientists, the best thinkers, saying quotes like this. This is Stephen Hawking. He says this about the afterlife, an article to The Guardian. He wasn't afraid of death, but he was in no hurry to die either. I regard the brain as a computer, which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. See, people are so afraid to look ahead that they're just trying to blind themselves in front. And this goes along with verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fail. Peter's actually quoting from the book of Isaiah. See, the early apostles were tasked with connecting to the Jewish church first, the Jewish people first, and so they would bridge the gap between the Old and the New Testament. And what this is going for is as humans, we aren't made to live forever. At some point, our cells will stop regenerating to the level they can. I've been told by people who are older than me that you can't do the same things you did when you were young. See, the world, our culture, is trying to give you to live the best life you can at that moment and just stick with that. To be the best flower you can be, burn the brightest, be the most beautiful thing you can, live to your fullest extent. Now, it's good to have fun. It's good to do those things. But the issue is when you become obedient to that first. It's like making Christ the last thing you do during the day is going to your devotional, spending time with God. See, our allegiance is supposed to be placed with Jesus, the only one who will stand with us at the end. We live really close to this place called Disneyland. It's known as the happiest place on earth as it advertises. They have this thing when you're in the park where you're supposedly not, not able to see outside of the park, so it gets you to kind of focus back inwards on the fun you're having and what's going on there. And then as the day starts to go towards the end, you're worried about losing the fun, the memories, so you start buying things for yourself and your kids and things you're gonna give to other people. And you start planning the next trip, just trying to recapture those couple of little memories. Or as they would say, maybe the Disney magic. This is no different than what the world is trying to feed us. Just make yourself as happy as you can right there, right then. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about anything else. Worry about yourself. They're so enamored with feeling and not with reality. 
We need to have this understanding that our cultural is a temporal place. It's going to fade away. They don't want you to realize that. They want you to ignore that. Don't think of the future. That, that doesn't, don't think about what happens if you die. That, that doesn't make you feel good. See, people who aren't chasing Christ are just chasing the next high, much like a drug addict. When a drug addict gets the first high, it's the best thing ever, and then they're chasing that moment over and over and over and over again. People not in Christ are just chasing a feeling. Maybe it's through sex, maybe it's through money, maybe it's through power, maybe it's through alcohol, drugs, porn, power, health, all this stuff. Anything that will just give them that feeling one more time. One more time. They feel they're on top of the world. At a low point in their life, if they have it, they'll see everything they've chased has led to nothing. And it's all over, and they're going to stand in front of a just God who has an objective standard of what is perfect and good. He asked them for their, their response, what they did. They're going to say, well, I was a good person. I had a lot of fun. I lived a while. And God's heart will break as he has to send them down for an eternal punishment. There's this artist, and I love the way he put it. This artist, his name is NF. He, he's gone triple platinum. He's at the top of the record labels. He's a Christian artist. He's gone into the, uh, the, the secular media as well. He tops the charts constantly. And he has this thing called an interlude, which is in between all of his songs, he, he talks about what it was like in the album. And he said he had gotten to the top. And when he had gotten to the top, he was then at his lowest point. He had wished he had just been dead. It didn't give him the fulfillment he thought it would give him. See, we face in our culture this just so much busyness. Life goes so quickly. And we just put God on the back burner. But if we have the proper understanding that Christianity, going to heaven or hell, is life or death, it's mission critical, it's not an extra credit assignment you do at the last second, but it should be this thing that we make important, it's the midterm, it's the final, it's that big project you're doing. So we're going to be honored to step by his side, to go and talk to him, talk with other people about him, to bring people to church with us, to bring people part of this family, to baptize them. We become privileged at that point to bring people part of our, his family. See, taking our relationship with Jesus seriously is understanding that we're giving all of our life to him, our full obedience, our full allegiance. See, instead of us constantly playing defense and trying to defend ourselves against the world and hide on our couches and hide in our church, let's go out and talk about Jesus with others. That's how it starts. We start by talking with other people. That's how the revival occurs. We're talking about Jesus, the good news. We're bringing it to people. That his word will live forever. 1 Peter 1.25 verse says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. There should be a picture coming up on the screen and it's gonna show you the amount of validity that scripture has to it. 
Oh, maybe I forgot it. Uh, there are these people. Uh, so scripture itself, there's so many more manuscripts, so many more copies of it. Manuscripts are like the original copies. And it was written within like 60 to 70 years compared to people that we've heard of a bunch about, like Homer and Odyssey and all these things, where they were written hundreds of years apart with so many less copies. And we won't take the scripture seriously that has exponentially more copies and is written in a much smaller period of time. See, most historians will actually acknowledge that Jesus is a historical figure, because you can't dispute that. But what they have trouble with is that he was raised, I can speak, I know it. He was raised from the dead. And because of this, we need to acknowledge him as he is Lord, because he can conquer death. There's also this validity in understanding what scripture is. It's the divine word of God. 1 Timothy 3, it says, it is breathed in by God, is breathed out by God. If it is truly God's word, then we're going to take it to heart and we're going to obey it to the best of our ability. We're not going to discard it and just throw it away. We're going to make it important to us. The Holy Spirit... uh, is going to help us with that as we crucify the flesh, as it mentions in Galatians 5. See, as Christians, we're called to this thing called spiritual formation, which is where, with the Spirit's help, we're working towards being more and more like Christ. And part of that is crucifying the flesh. See, we have to have this understanding that crucifying the flesh, getting rid of the old, and coming to the new creation, it's not going to be easy. Much like crucifixion isn't easy. So your flesh, every time you're powered with the Holy Spirit to fight against sin, you're going to want to give in so badly. Your body's going to want to sin. And the Bible uses the analogy of sin in Mark and in a couple other spots. It's better to cut off your right hand than to sin. See, uh, sorry, it's better to cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin than to leave it on. Essentially telling you the severity of how bad sin is for our life. See, instead, we're called to speak truth and listen to truth. That's through reading the gospel. That's through sermons. That's through worshiping God. It's bringing the truth into our lives. I don't know about you, but uh, I always had this struggle of what's kind of conviction like, right? You're sitting there. You're listening to a sermon, and, and you feel this conviction. Something hits you upside the head. Your stomach becomes a knot. You don't know what to do with it. So you start to maybe take one of uh, a few different views. Maybe you're the person like who goes to the gym for the first time and you have this schedule of all these things you're gonna do to not sin anymore. Or maybe you're the person who hears something, you feel conviction, the stomach, all that stuff, and you're like, I don't do that. My kids do that. Or my friend does that. I don't sin. And you just completely throw it to the side. Or maybe you even just ignore it outright. You hear conviction, it goes in one ear and out the other. See, we're called when we feel conviction to go to the Holy Spirit, to take it to him and allow him to work in our life as God restores us. He wants to help us. He wants to develop us. Lastly, the third point, we're going to be rooted and 1 Peter 125.b says this. 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. See, Peter's going to wrap up this whole chapter with a line about how Christians have this great capacity to love. It's given to us by God to love like he does. One of the greatest stories in scripture about love is the story of the prodigal son. If you don't know this story, the son goes to his father and tells him, I want my inheritance, I want my money, I want to go do what I want with it. Basically, he's telling the father he should be dead because he wants the inheritance. And he goes and he does every little thing he can. He spends all the money, he gets to the lowest point of his life, and finally he realizes, well, maybe I should go back to my father's house. And we see the love and compassion for his father. The father doesn't turn the son away. He doesn't leave him there. When he sees him coming up, he runs to him. See, that's the type of love we're called to have for other people, to help them be rooted in their lives and planted firmly in their faith, as it says in Colossians. See, we want to be rooted in our faith, much like a pine tree that's going to go straight down to the water and keep chasing the water instead of a plant that's kind of branching out and not really holding firm. We're just kind of sitting on the shallow side. One thing that you can do to really help you is bring somebody to walk alongside of you as a Christian, what we call accountability partner. So let's face it, life can be hard. We go through so many issues, so much pain, through medical, through money, family issues. That's just naming a couple. I'm sure you've all had your own. See, part of having that person walk alongside with you is they're going to walk with you through the good, they're going to cheer with you in the good, and they're going to weep with you in the bad. But then they're also, they're going to call you out when you do something that's ungodly. They're going to bring you back to obedience. Uh, For me, I have two really good buddies that most of you know in here, Angel and Israel Santos. And there's been so many times in the middle of the nights where we've called each other, and it's like, man, this is not going right. I just need someone to talk to And there's been even more times where they've called me out and gotten in my face for doing something that's not in the will of God, for not being obedient. And they direct me back to being obedient to Christ. Uh, If we don't know, a testimony is a story about how you come to Christ. How do you come to give your obedience and your allegiance to him? If you're here at the nine o'clock, a couple of the guys came up and said theirs. For me personally, my, uh, my life has been challenging. There's been a lot of pain, there's been a lot of sorrow, a lot of anger that's come from the pain and sorrow, a lot of pride. When I was in eighth grade here, I went to the school and the church, and the last thing I wanted to do was come back here. I didn't want to be part of this. See, God kept knocking at my heart. And as things got worse, he put Christians, good Christians in my life, who brought me back to him. And now I get the privilege to be obedient to him even through all the wrong. See, Christianity is not, it's not a set of rules that we have to follow. 
It's the understanding of God's grace through his love. That we can't get ourselves out of this sin. We can't meet that level of perfection. If anything, most of the time we just make the sin worse and worse, like digging a hole, digging yourself out of a hole. It just gets wider and wider. See, the Jewish people, they kind of got that when they were given the Ten Commandments plus a bunch of other laws, and they realized they couldn't meet that standard. Then he even started to add some more rules to it. See, God gave us Jesus, this person who took on the punishment that we rightfully deserved. We can only accept his forgiveness and his grace in our life. Unfortunately, some people... They don't want to. And those are people we want to constantly be praying for. We want to be there for them. We want to show them God's love. Inviting them to church. We want to keep showing them who Christ is. We want them to be with us. As Christians, we're going to give them our full lives in obedience to him. To turn away from the world and its temptations. To turn towards love and being firmly planted in him. question comes, where does your allegiance lie? Are you truly all in like that mouse Reepicheep who's going to swim and do whatever he could to get to the kingdom of God to your very last breath? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this day and we're so thankful that we get to be obedient, to be a part of your family, to, to be alongside of you. We're not chasing anything alone. We're chasing it with you and chasing it with our church brothers and sisters. We pray for those who don't know you. That they may call upon your name. Pray for you to guide us when we go astray. For those we know who've gone astray. We thank you for the people who helped put this morning together. We pray for uh, our team here. and We thank you for everything that everybody's doing want nothing more than to please you and be allegiant and obedient to you first. In Jesus' name, amen.